0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Please welcome again for our fourth session today in today's conference, Bishop Michael. Well, that's what I call a short introduction. <laughs> and, uh, all the better for it. Thank you. And thank you also for replenishing my coke. It's uh, much appreciated. Well, we have been talking, uh, brothers and sisters, about uh, the meaning of the Gospel. And of course, uh, this is unfathomable. I mean, in a sense, we could go on talking about the meaning of the Gospel uh, for the rest of today. But I want to turn now. Uh, to the power of the Gospel, and to its uh, practical application in our day-to-day lives as Christians and our interaction uh, with people around us. And I want to begin, really, uh, with the fourth chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. And this is, uh, as you will know, uh, the so-called Nazareth Manifesto. This is uh, Jesus at home in the synagogue uh, and reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Uh, This is, of course, uh, Jesus' reading from Isaiah chapter 61. There are some points of difference. If you go back to Isaiah 61, you will find there are some things he does not say. The day of vengeance of our God, he doesn't say that. Uh, Because here he is concerned with the good news. Anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Literally so that the poor may be evangelized. Good newsized, I suppose uh, we could say. That is what should be happening to the poor according to this Nazareth manifesto. Uh, And then he finishes by proclaiming jubilee. The acceptable year of the Lord is, of course, the year of jubilee. When debts are forgiven, uh, when people can return home, when uh, goods and land, etc., from which they've been alienated, can be restored to them. It is, in other words, a time of healing and of restoration. The acceptable year of the Lord. Well, um, the people in the synagogue were rather appreciative, um, as you have very kindly been uh, so far, um, to what Jesus had said. But then he goes on to say something that makes them less appreciative, and indeed outright hostile, because he extends the purpose of this prophecy to the whole world. Not just to the Jewish people, not just to his own hometown, not just to Galileans, not only to Judeans, but to the whole world. He says in the days of Elijah, there were many widows in Israel, but Elijah was not sent to any of them, but he was sent to a Gentile in Zarephath, and there were many lepers ...in Israel in the days of Elisha... ...and he was not sent uh, to any of them... ...but to Naaman the Syrian. It's this universalizing... ...of the good news that makes... ...his hometown hostile. How dare you bring all these strange people... ...into our church. I mean, this is a nice club. We are used to having lunch with one another... Uh, We like to sit together, and we like to sing songs that everybody knows. And you are jeopardizing all this by bringing in strangers. I was interviewed on the BBC recently by quite a hostile journalist about the refugee situation. And uh, she said to me uh, at the very beginning of the interview, she said, but your Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. I said, yes, my Bible also says to love the stranger as yourself, because you were strangers in Egypt. She was rather taken aback by that. She didn't quite know what next to say, well, which is always a good thing uh, (laughs) to to have as um, an interviewer, someone who doesn't know quite what to say next, because then you've got the opportunity to say something yourself. But here is Jesus publishing the manifesto, which should also be ours, as far as the practical application of the power of the gospel is concerned. Now, of course, um, in every context, in every situation, uh, we will find different felt needs that people have. Um, And we have to identify what the felt needs are in our particular situation, whether that's a nation or a community or a city like Toronto. But there are some things in the Western world, I would say this differently if I were saying this in the Middle East, for instance, today. But in the Western world, there are some things that we have to note uh, in terms of bringing This practical application of the gospel to bear on them. The first is a widespread sense of alienation. I think that has been mentioned already by each of the speakers. Uh, A sense of alienation and what is it alienation from? What is this sense of alienation about? Well, I think there are three aspects to it. The first is it is in the end, an alienation from the very ground of our being. You know, if you find that you cannot ground yourself in the very source of your existence by denying that source, for example, or by being ignorant of such a source, uh, then you are cut off from the wellsprings of life, aren't you? And many people are cut off. Uh, Hegel has been mentioned pejoratively already uh, let me mention him in a slightly more favorable light. Uh, I mean, Hegel saw this. He saw the human condition as alienated from the very source uh, of human existence. And I think he was, he was right in that. Then we are alienated from one another. Um, even with people whom we uh, think are the most like us there is a wall of obscurity, of not knowing precisely who or what the other person is, what they are thinking, what they think of us, very importantly, and they equally don't know what we think of them. And so there is the possibility of mutual suspicion and distance Uh, Amongst human beings, even those who are very like one another, let alone people who are strangers or maybe even our enemies. There is alienation from our work. Uh, Marx uh, said many things that are best forgotten. Yeah. But I think his analysis of the relationship of the worker to the product of the the work, of his or her work, remains important because Marx uh, said that uh, in a system of mass production, the worker is alienated from the product of his work because he does not own it. Uh, I mean, I have this, you know, I write books like uh, Joe... And uh, your book is your own until a certain point when the publishers take over. Uh, I'm doing that at the moment. And then it is in their hands. They have the technical expertise. Uh, They know how they're going to lay it out. Um, They choose the cover and all sorts of things. And you have the sense of being alienated from your own work. Well, this is definitely the experience, according to Marx, of people and their products in a system of mass production. He also said that uh, workers were alienated from one another because uh, each person is engaged in their piece of work rather than a sense of contributing to the whole. And then, of course, uh, finally... uh, The disciplines of psychiatry and psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, have discovered that there is an inner cleavage. Uh, We are alienated from ourselves. We do not know ourselves. Uh, There is a conflict between different aspects of the human personality uh, for reasons of experience, uh, perhaps, or relationships, uh, which have to be resolved in one way or another. Uh, So um, alienation uh, is uh, something that confronts us as we bring the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to people. Secondly, uh, there is anxiety. Um, Some analyses of modern Western society say that this is characteristic of post-Second World War Western society. A sense of anxiety... Well, about existence itself, the fragility of our lives and our fears of how it can suddenly be brought to an end. I mean, this uh, was shown very clearly in the Cold War with the fear of a nuclear holocaust, for instance. Uh, some of you may, uh, may remember that. There is then uh, anxiety which is caused by guilt, I mean, you look at any novel written after the Second World War and you will see that guilt, sometimes unspoken, uh, sometimes guilt about uh, an action uh, that is almost forgotten, uh, but there is guilt, uh, anxiety about guilt, about something that we have thought or done uh, which we shouldn't have. Um, And then, of course, there is anxiety about external events. I mean, how many people ask me about Armageddon these days? And I'm not usually, I reassure uh, Dr. Robinson, uh, one to think about these things in this way. But uh, the other uh, day I was thinking, I have to confess, that uh, Iran is now in the person of its proxies, Hezbollah, in Lebanon, less than 40 miles from the traditional battleground of Armageddon. Well, that made me feel very anxious indeed. You see, so anxiety is something that we live with all the time uh, for various reasons. I'm sure you'll be able to add uh, to what I've said to the to the causes of anxiety that there are. And then... Uh, This sense of alienation and of anxiety is often met with uh, by a recourse to addiction. Now, addiction can be to well-known things like alcohol. I am amazed, I have to say, in a university setting, at the amount of alcohol undergraduates drink these days. I mean, I can't think how they do any work after having (laughs) drunk so much alcohol. That must go down as a modern miracle. Um, Somehow get through. Um, But uh, alcohol is uh, is a very serious issue in terms of family life, of crime, um, of violence in the home. I mean, all of those things. In the British hospitals, in the emergency accident and emergency wards, uh, a very high percentage of people who come to accident emergency come because of alcohol or drug addiction and, what, and the consequences thereof. Uh, but, of course, addiction is not just about alcohol or drugs. It can be much more subtle than that. Um, the government in Britain these days is arguing for longer hours of Sunday opening because they say people want to shop even more. Well, they've already got six and three-quarters days, six and three-quarter days in the week to shop, but they want the whole seven now. Well, I mean, is shopping such an attractive activity? Um, What do they do? I mean, how much do they buy? Um, I've just been watching the Black Friday events on your television screens. Uh, If things can be sold so, so cheaply, why are they not sold so cheaply all the time? <laughs> you know? um, yeah. So shopping. Um, uh, Tim Keller in his book on power, money and sex has shown us how we can be addicted to each of these. Uh, power certainly. Um, they did a um, study of middle managers in Pakistan. Joe, you'll be interested to, uh, to hear. And they discovered that what uh, motivates middle managers in Pakistan is power, not achievement. You see. Uh, addiction to money. When have you got enough money? You know, Have you ever met anyone who said, I've got enough money? You know, it can become an addiction just to have more and more uh, money, even if we don't know what to do with it in the end. And then success, a place in society, some position, um, so that people can recognize us as, as successful persons, and how difficult it is for the sake of the gospel to give it up, if we have to. I talk to members of parliament who are Christians, very fine Christians, all the time, and it is so difficult for them not to compromise because if they did not compromise, they would lose their positions. I was uh, sitting with some very fine Christian MPs the other day, and I mentioned the name of another MP, and I said, oh, could he do such and such? And they said, oh, no, Bishop, don't, don't touch him. So I said, well, why? What's he done? He said, no, 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 he's up for a cabinet position, and if you asked him to do that, you know, he won't get it. Well, what a sad commentary. So there can be addiction of various kinds. Alienation, anxiety, addiction. I think these three A's characterize the context in which the gospel has to be addressed. And so what does the gospel do? You know, how are the poor evangelized? Good newsized? In our culture... At this time, I think it is most important for us to say that the gospel is about forgiveness. Um, People uh, live with guilt. Um, They live uh, with a sense of having done wrong without knowing how to put it right. So, the gospel's offer of forgiveness uh, by God, one for us through the work of Christ as we have seen, uh, is extremely important for people to hear. I, you know, well, all pastors know this. Um, people come to us uh, having thought that they've done the most terrible thing. Sometimes the things are not as terrible as as they think they are. Nevertheless, they think they are terrible, and sometimes they are. What do you say to them? I mean, one of the things that I always say is that a new start, I mean, this is the gospel, a new start is always possible. A new start is always possible. There is never anyone to whom we can say, for you, a new start is not possible. But if we preach this kind of forgiveness, then we also have to be forgiving people. Now, I find that very tough, to be quite frank, um, to forgive uh, the wrongs that I feel have been done to me. But the point is we will not ever be credible uh, as disciples of Jesus Christ if we do not say, Father, forgive them. If we do not say, I forgive you. Uh, And we find this very difficult. And this is one of the reasons why the gospel doesn't become credible to more people. (laughs) Forgiveness and then friendship. Now... The basis for this as always, the friendship with God that has been won for us by Jesus' radical obedience on the cross, where he has, by what he has done, uh, turned away God's wrath at our disobedience um, so that we can experience God's love once again. Uh, Bishop John uh, Robinson, uh, who became rather notorious with his book Honest to God, some of you may remember, but he was a rather better New Testament uh, scholar than he was a theologian, and he wrote a very fine commentary uh, on the letter to the Romans called Wrestling with Romans, in which he says, God is only love. Those Who turn to that love experience it as love. Those who turn away from it experience it as wrath. Do you say wrath or wrath here? Wrath. You really are American, right? (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I wonder about Canadians. You know, (laughs) Uh, maybe Canadians do about themselves. That's it in a nutshell. That. Uh, the way to friendship with God has been opened up again so that we may once again experience him as love and not as anger, not as wrath. Uh, but then this friendship with God has to spill out, doesn't it? Uh, into friendship uh, with fellow believers, uh, with, uh, f- uh, into friendship with others. And one of the mistakes I think that the church has made in recent years is not to focus on friendship more than it has. Uh, Friendship is a very endangered thing in our culture for all sorts of reasons. I mean, people are very busy. They don't have time for friends. Uh, Friendships are not as deep as they used to be. People pair off earlier and earlier. I mean, sometimes I see uh, teenagers uh, pairing off and I... Think to myself, are they really old enough to be doing this kind of thing? Uh, but they are doing it, and that means that same sex friendships, for example, that used to be very important, are now jeopardized, weakened uh, by people of different uh, genders pairing off. Now, um, if the church had said that. Same-sex friendships like Jonathan's and David's are something that the church values and wants to enrich. Then we wouldn't have had the artificial, the make-believe, make-believe um, claims uh, of the uh, of the gay lobby about those sorts of relationships. So it's because the healthy relationship has been weakened. Something that is um, False has been promoted. Forgiveness and friendship, and then there is faithfulness. God's faithfulness, of course. That is the basis for the gospel, isn't it? Uh, That God has been faithful, and because of the faithfulness of Christ, we find we are accepted by God. You see. Uh, So our faith. ...in the faithfulness of Christ... ...is what brings about our justification. But then we are also called... ...to be faithful. And one of the cornerstones... ...I think of the Puritan achievement... ...was to underline this idea... ...of a vocation of faithfulness. You see. A vocation of accountability... ...of responsibility... Uh, The best of British business, I don't know about Canada, uh, used to be my word is my bond. Um, People had a sense of vocation in whatever calling it was that they were called. um, And they had a sense of responsibility and of accountability in whatever calling it was that they were called. Now, uh, all this was set aside. Uh, In London, we had something called the Big Bang. It's not just something that happened 15 billion years ago or whatever they say. It happened in the city of London. And the idea was to do away with these ideas of vocation, accountability, responsibility, and replace them with greed. Uh, Boris Johnson, I think I mentioned him uh, earlier, uh, controversial mayor of London, he and I were... Uh, on a program together called Any Questions, and he was sitting on my right, and he turned to me and he said, "Uh, Bishop, he said, greed is good, isn't it? So I said, look, Boris, you'll expect me to say no, but why do you say greed is good? He said, well, it, it makes some people rich, and then it makes the nation rich. So I said, you're right about the first part. It has made a few people rich, but it's put the nation into debt, which even our grandchildren won't be able to pay off. But it was the abandoning of this biblical Christian idea of responsibility and accountability, of faithfulness in the vocation to which God has called us that has led to the situation in which we find ourselves that was mentioned on your video just now. Um, And then, of course, there is the family. I don't know what the family has done to have merited such frontal attack on it in the last 50 years. What we do know is that the family is the primary place for the transmission of the gospel. Callum Brown, in his book The Death of Christian Britain, says that he dates the demise of public Christianity in Britain from the time that mothers, mothers, ...stopped transmitting the faith to their children. Now, he goes into an analysis of why mothers stopped doing this... ...which has to do uh, quite a lot with the changing role of women in Western society. I don't have time to go into the rights and wrongs of this... ...but there we are. When mothers stopped transmitting... the, ...he says the faith in Britain was not transmitted essentially by the churches... Not even by the schools, it was by the women in the home. And when that stopped happening, Christianity ceased being of public importance. Now, I think he's overdoing it, but, but the thesis is clear. Uh, in this, uh, on this continent, Mary Abbashtar uh, has also pointed out that the fortunes of faith and family go together. Decline in the family, decline in the faith stronger families, stronger the Christian faith. And I I think this is uh, basically right. Now, um, the Christian faith uh, is, of course, about recognizing the spiritual aspirations of people. Um, Professor David uh, Hay and his collaborator Kate Hunt have done some wide-ranging research in Britain about the spirituality of people who don't go to church or don't really belong to any kind of organized religion. And they found that nearly all of these people have a spiritual sense and sometimes even a kind of spiritual vocabulary, poor as it might be. The Alastair Hardy Institute in Oxford similarly did research amongst working men. That was the title. Working, the spiritual experience of working men. And they discovered that about more than a third of working men had had some kind of defining spiritual experience in their lives, but they were unable to socialize it because the culture of the pub and the football ground forbade it. There was no way for them to talk about it, so they never talked about it, never grew, didn't come to anything. Uh, Isn't that that a shame? Uh, What a pity that we've got these stunted people uh, as far as spirituality is concerned. But uh, what I'm saying is we have to Uh, Be aware of this. There is very little radical secularization. I mean, there may be a few elite people who are completely secularized, but uh, in some research I did myself a few years ago, I discovered that most people have a kind of, in Britain anyway, a kind of pick-and-mix superstitious spirituality so what are we going how do we bring the gospel to such people who have spiritual aspiration but can hardly put words to it uh, in this connection um, also with uh, people coming to christian faith from another faith background my experience is uh, that of course these people will always acknowledge there are many things in their background that have to be put away that are under the judgment of Christ uh, and uh, they do um, put them away even if they have to struggle with them. But I've never met anyone yet from another faith background who has said that everything before his coming to Christ or her coming to Christ uh, was entirely useless. For many of them, many of their experiences were leading them to Christ. Uh, Some might even say they were a kind of preparation uh, for the gospel for them. So how we handle people's spiritual awareness in bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to them is extremely important. To be able to discern from what is truly a movement of the Holy Spirit uh, from what is uh, erroneous, what is false. Um, But this if we think of the spiritual, we must also think of the bodily. And I'm so glad that um, both uh, Joe and David have have talked about this, that of the importance of the body. the miracle of the body. You know, if we sim- simply and suddenly escape to the soul, or the uh, whatever you call it, then we uh, neglect what is the miracle of the body. Um, amazing. I mean, just take any aspect of the body and think about it. You'll see what a miracle the body is. Um, and... Um, Christians need to take the body more seriously uh, as a way of worship. Uh, I mean, this is where our so sitting in the pews relatively comfortably kind of Christianity, I mean, I've been sitting in that pew all day, so that's why I say relatively comfortably, <laughs> it doesn't involve us in the use of the body as the Bible intends it. Kneeling, standing for prayer, raising our hands in prayer, proscunio and its Hebrew equivalent all mean putting our heads to the the floor in prostration. Uh, The great figures, I I know you can't hear uh, this uh, perhaps, David, but the great uh, images of worship in the book of the Revelation are so much about posture, aren't they? Well, what are we doing with our bodies in our worship of God? How are we valuing our bodies? And I think quite a lot of Christian teaching needs to happen in that way. But then there is also the mind, the forming of a Christian mind. I am so glad that the Ezra Institute is doing this. I am a great um, sympathizer, I think is the word, of the charismatic movement. I think it has uh, loosened Christians, uh, made them less rigid, relaxed them, Uh, You know, all of us sing those songs and so on that the charismatic movement has produced and so on. Fine, excellent. But it has had the effect of Christians not taking the mind seriously enough. Uh, And just as the body is God-given, so is the mind. it is there for you to use it, uh, not to pickle it. And to, you know, put it away somewhere. Well, sometimes it seems as if, you know, that is what's happened uh, to Christians. I was um, on a series of television programs called The Soul of Britain. Are you going to show me uh, the thing, are you? Oh, really? (laughs) I think you've just remembered that. I'll ignore it, I think, because I asked... (laughs) Um, and it's called The Soul of Britain, and what the BBC had done in its great wisdom was to gather all sorts of people together. There were astrologers there, New Agers, and then there was me as a Christian, and Peter Atkins, who is a friend of Richard Dawkins and a militant atheist. Well, what happened, it's very interesting what happened. Peter Atkins and I teamed up to see off the astrologers, the New Agers, etc., because we both had a common commitment to reason. And then we were left to fight it out ourselves. (laughs) But that couldn't be done, you see, without a commitment to the Christian mind. I mean, this is the the point that I'm trying to make. Um, John Polkinghorne admires, uh, as a scientist... Not only the the lawfulness of the universe, in spite of its openness, spontaneity, and randomness, which he also acknowledges, uh, but also its intelligibility to us. As I was saying earlier, and I admire John Polkinghorne, of course, as he admires the universe. Um, Great scientist, great Christian, uh, who is a scientist, and uh, we need uh, many more such people. But the, uh, the relationship uh, both of uh, an intelligible universe and the rationality and our own rationality, I mean that is what has led to the possibility of empirical science. Um, I was a friend well, I was befriended by, who was at that time a very senior man called Sir Joseph Needham, who was then the master of Keys College, Cambridge. I don't know why he befriended me, but he did. And he was at that time the greatest expert, maybe for the last century, on China. They call them sinologists. Uh, that doesn't mean experts on sin. but uh, um, You are an expert on sin, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> um, but Joseph Needham was an expert on China. And he was an agnostic, not a Christian at all. But he kept asking the question, what? China, at the time of the rise of modernity, had a higher material civilization than the West, than Western Europe. So why was it, Needham kept asking himself, why was it that empirical science arose in Western Europe and not in China? And the answer that he came to rather reluctantly was that it was because of Christianity, because of its view of a lawful an ordered and predictable universe. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the Department of Culture in the People's Republic of China is also very interested in precisely this question. What role did Christianity have to play in the rise of empirical science in Western Europe? Isn't that amazing? So, um, uh, the spiritual, the bodily... Uh, and, the, uh, and our valuing of the mind. Um, science, uh, of course, uh, has asked uh, certain kinds of questions. It has asked the what kind of questions. Uh, What is this thing? I was asked to preach the 150th uh, anniversary sermon uh, uh, for the... I think it was the death anniversary... No, was it the death or the... Yes, it would have been um, the death anniversary of Charles Darwin. Um, Yes, it would have been the death, I think. Uh, Anyway, I was asked to preach this sermon. And so I had to do some research on Charles Darwin. And I discovered that for several years... Darwin uh, did research on barnacles. You know, very small things. Uh, well, you know, science is right to focus on the what. You know, what is this? That was, after all, one of the things that Adam was commissioned to do, to name, to name the creatures. Nothing wrong with that. Science is also good at the how kind of question. You know, how does this work? Um, But uh, science has not been good uh, at certain other kinds of questions like the why kind of question. I mean, in the end, science cannot answer that question about why there is a universe, why am I here? Uh, Those sorts of questions are beyond the capacity of empirical science Uh, To answer. And it can also not answer the what for question. This used to be called the teleological question. You know, what are things for? What is the universe for? What am I here for? The question about purpose. And then, There is this strange idea, I came across this in doing research on Darwin, that science suddenly came as we know it into existence in the nineteenth century. You know, it suddenly sort of took off from almost nowhere. But in fact, this is not the case. It has now been demonstrated by James Hannum, for instance, that empirical science is deeply rooted. Uh, in the philosophy, the Christian philosophy of the Middle Ages, uh, in the the way in which the reformers urged people to be honest about their study, about what they were studying, um, and also to some extent uh, by the moderate enlightenment, not the radical enlightenment that ended in the bloodbaths of Paris, but the moderate enlightenment Uh, which was, of course, itself uh, Christian-influenced. In the same way, um, we can think about time. I mean, one of the uh, features of the modern world has been a flattening of time. So, uh, all ancient religions, as far as I know, think of time as cyclical as going round and round and coming back to the same place. The modern scientific view uh, tends to be of time going, as it were, towards the extinction, the heat death of the universe. It is only biblical time that is open and progressive. And actually that that is the idea of time that most people work with. I mean, most people don't work with the idea of time as leading to the heat death of the universe. I mean, you'd have large-scale depression on your hands if if, if they did. And um, although there's greater fascination with Indian ideas about the cyclical nature of time, it is only the Bible that can give us a sense of time which is open, progressive, developmental, on which so many of our activities, of course, depend One of the things that the church did uh, in the past was to take people out of mundane time uh, from one season to another. So tomorrow is Advent, and I can see all these preparations for the beginning of Advent. Well, that was to make people think about something. The coming again of Jesus Christ, or Easter, or whatever. What has happened with secularization is a flattening of time, so that time has become simply chronological succession. Uh, And if we are going to appeal to the imagination of people, we have to somehow to re-enchant time. I think that is what you're doing tomorrow, it looks to me, Uh, because people need to be taken out of themselves Uh, to uh, something that is beyond them, that is beyond mere chronological succession, but is actually purposive. And the same can be said also of space, by the way. Um, At one time, the Holy Land was thought of as the fifth gospel, uh, because people thought... One minute left. My goodness. uh, I am going to transgress this time. Uh, uh, because people thought that you could understand the four Gospels better if you went to the Holy Land, or at least if you studied. If you couldn't go, you could study it. But now, there is no such thing as sacred space. Even churches have become chat rooms. You know, when did you last come into a church and find somebody praying? I mean, it's a strange question to ask, but really, seriously, when did you? So again, uh, I think the setting aside of space for people so that they may experience nearness to God, I'm not saying that this is necessary. I'm sure you can experience nearness to God on your streetcars, fine. But why not places for mindfulness? Why should the secular world steal our clothes from us? Why should they? When we've got the whole range of meditative uh, practices, of prayer, of contemplation, and yet a few tawdry ideas about mindfulness are getting the attention of the National Health Service and and what have you. Okay, so uh, what are we going to do? I think uh, three things very briefly and then I will stop. One is evangelism. We have to bring this gospel, this good news, uh, as Jesus has announced it, uh, to people around us. But as Joe was pointing out earlier, the problem uh, is uh, the plausibility structures. People just now do not have the mental furniture for you to talk about the message of the Bible about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, this is why a properly Christian worldview is so important because that is the context in which you can share the gospel. And one of the lies that you have to nail before anything else is the idea that secularity is neutrality. Secularity is not neutrality. Secularity is also a worldview Uh, And when it comes down to it, it comes down to comparing people's worldviews, whether they have uh, an Indo-European worldview, which is gaining currency um, very rapidly these days, or a secular worldview, or a Christian. And which makes sense? I mean, this is what we have to ask our neighbors and friends. Which worldview makes most sense of this world, of your life, of the future, of our society? So, the plausibility structures have to be restored because they have been damaged and indeed neglected even by the church. Secondly, um, the the Christian community, the congregation or the church, um, in the Western world, uh, for a very long time, we have worked with a pastoral model of the church. Um, hatching, matching, dispatching, uh, you know, pastors are good at that. Um, uh, therapy for individuals or couples in the study, they're very good at that. But of course, the problem is that is not a missionary model, whatever its value. And every congregation has to decide whether it is going to turn from a pastoral to a missionary model of the church. This is going to be costly. I mean, not in terms of money, but in terms of time, interest, and so on. I compare this to the two evangelical metaphors of salt and light. Salt works invisibly. Yeah? It nurtures, it um, um, provides taste, it preserves, but it's not if you see salt visible on food, there's probably too much on it or in it. And that has been the model of Western churches, working invisibly with the grain of society. That's not wrong. But the question is, should our metaphor now change from salt to light? And light, of course, works by being visible. There's no point having light, as Jesus said, and putting it under the table. You put it where everyone can see it and be seen by it. See it and be seen by it. So which is it going to be? Are we going to persist with the salt metaphor? That's also an evangelical metaphor. Or are we going to switch to the light one? Is the congregation going to be, as Leslie Newbegin said, the best hermeneutic of the gospel? It's up to you. Thirdly and finally, this is is the preacher's finally, Uh, What about society? How are we going to uh, engage with society? The people of Israel, when they were going into exile, unwillingly into Babylon, were told by God, through the prophet Jeremiah, yes, you are not willing to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, but the Lord's word to you is to do what? To settle down in your place of exile, to build houses, to plant gardens, to eat their produce, to marry and be given in marriage, to have children, and to pray, to pray for the welfare of the city to which you have been sent, you see. So even if we are in exile, we are not excused involvement. And this is seen, of course, in the attitude of uh, Daniel and his friends. Precisely in that exile. That they make important contributions to the polity, the administration, and the social welfare of the place to which they have been sent. Except when they're asked to do something that God has forbidden. Yeah? Um, or they are forbidden to do something like turning east to Jerusalem that God has commanded. Then they have to say, as the early Christians did, we must obey God rather than men. Refusing to burn that little pinch of incense to Caesar and acknowledging him as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. The magistrate in Romans 13, the godly magistrate who is there to reward the good and to punish the evil. Yes, Christians have to work with such a magistrate. Even when the magistrate is not Christian. But always being alert to the possibility of the godly magistrate of Romans 13 becoming the evil beast of Revelation 13. You see. How did that happen? The power of the Gospel continues to change people and indeed nations. The narrative, the paradigm of creation, redemption, transformation continues because of God's work in our world, the witness of the Holy Spirit in the lives of so many. The work of the eternal Logos illuminating people's hearts and minds uh, wherever um, we find them. We've got to keep our nerve. At this time, great hostility, perhaps unprecedented hostility that the church is facing. But the power of the gospel is such The world view of the Bible is such that it will continue to challenge and transform people. Sometimes that happens because of what we do. Sometimes because of the sovereignty of God. I am always amazed how people are attracted still out of the world to the world view of the Bible and to the transforming power of the gospel. I am so delighted that God has put this church here in the middle of Toronto at this very challenging time with this vision, which is coherent, cohesive, and transforming. I pray that more and more people uh, will come to be affected by it, influenced by it, and changed uh, by the gospel that you are committed to uh, for service in the church And in the world. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.